Hello and welcome to Bright Wings, children's books to make the heart soar. I'm your host, Charity Hill. This is the conversation to help mothers and fathers locate books that will liberate their children to embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. Today we're talking about the question, where have I come from? In my initial podcast, I proposed that books worth reading help us to ask the great questions of life. Where have I come from is the question that helps us think about how does setting influence character? How does place get inside a character? And not only that, but we want to know this because we want to know how does place get inside of me? How does place get inside of my children? My dad was a city boy from Evanston, Illinois, and he would often say about my mom, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. That's another way of saying that place gets inside a character. He knew what she loved and that it had shaped her. Joining me today to talk about this is my good friend, Carla Galdo. Carla and I became friends in graduate school when she was pretty newly wed. She's someone of whom I would be jealous if I didn't love her so much. So let me tell you why, because she's pretty amazing. Carla collaborates with the National Book Club Well-Read Mom, and she writes for Well-Read Mom, and she's going to be the voice on many an audio introduction this year for them. For 10 years, Carla has also contributed to the Humanum Review, Issues in Family, Culture, and Science. It's such a great online publication. Carla has five children with a sixth on the way. So we know that she is actively living courage. She loves classical education and uh, Charlotte Mason, and she's homeschooled for 10 years now. She's married 16 years to Michael Galdo, who's a musician. So their house is full of music in a unique and beautiful way. Carla really believes that place is so crucial to character that she and Michael moved their family to a farm in Virginia. So welcome, Carla, to Bright Wings. Hi, Charity. Good to be here. Uh, Carla, actually, you helped name Bright Wings, so I owe a lot to you. <laughs> <laughs> I almost forgot about that. But you really help. You help shape my thought in so many ways. It's really fun that you're able to join this conversation today. One of the things that made me want to talk to you about this is the whole story of how you and Michael decided that your children needed a place and what kind of a place you thought they needed to shape them. So I'd really love to hear sort of the story behind that. What made you want to move your children to land? You and Michael didn't grow up on farms. No. So... My husband and I just both grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. My family was a military family, so we moved around, but we ended up near D.C. Um, And our extended family both had roots in the suburbs of New Jersey near big cities. Um, That's just to say neither one of us had farming or anything that was particularly rural in our immediate background. So that's right. What drew you to the land? Well, it's funny. My husband tells the story of trying to garden in this really poor soil on the side of his very shady house. I think it had no grass because it was where they kept the trash cans. So (laughs) he might have moved them away in order to, you know, find some dirt to scratch in and plant seeds. And uh, Michael, with his sister and brother-in-law, also made a bunch of trips down to um, our diocesan mission in Bonica in the Dominican Republic in a really, really rural area. So I think just their way of life down there impacted him. 
Um, for me, one of my formative young adult experiences was working as a camp counselor out at Camp Gray, which is a Catholic camp of the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin. And while I was there in my time off, I just had a lot of opportunity to really relish the setting that I was in. That was in this tiny town in the middle of a kind of pine forested area that also had a lot of open cornfields near it. And so I would ride my bike during my breaks just through these amazing expanses of blue sky and just Wisconsin landscape. And I had never been to the Midwest. So it was it was very impressive to me. One other moment that was particularly memorable was when almost time for me to leave and I was very sad to leave the great community that I had formed there. It was nighttime. We stepped outside. The northern lights were just kind of ethereally glowing in the sky. I've never seen them before. I've never seen them since. And it was for me nearly miraculous because I I didn't even know what it was. So I had a very profound experience of God and his hand in the world and in a community at that place. I've always kind of held on to that as my kind of one of my most profound experiences of faith and of spirituality and of of the Lord. And I think that the place, the natural place had a lot to do with it as did the the community. It's so interesting to think about how does place shape desire. For me, growing up, I grew up in a small town of 1,200 people. There were no stoplights, no fast food. It's called Hersher if you want to move there. And it totally shaped me. It's small enough, right? It's one of those blink and you miss it. It's a map dot or maybe not even a map dot kind of a place. It's small enough, though, that it can't be mistaken for any other place in the world. It's so specific. I think specificity is getting hard to come by in a world that's colonized by globalization. Actually, I've lived in six North American cities, but I still think of myself as a small town girl. Being from somewhere specific has helped me to be somebody specific. I really want to give a, a sense of place to my children. I want them to feel like they are from somewhere. It's been a bit of a struggle for us because we've we have moved so much. Your story about moving to Virginia so that your kids would have outright land to belong to. It's really interesting. So more directly, when my husband and I were married and beginning our family, having our first children, we were involved in three things that were really decisive that led us out to purchasing land. The first was reading some books that were very impactful for us. The second was being really trying to support local food, organic grown food in our area support that economy as much as we could with our purchasing choices. The third thing was participating in this discussion group about distributism with a group of friends from my graduate school, which is the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family. Great place. So to explain, I'll go through them backwards. So the discussion group on distributism, I don't think everybody might know what distributism is. So just a really quick definition. It was a response that came about kind of in the early 1900s to the growing concentration of wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer individuals, in particular um, with the Industrial Revolution booming. G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc were really influential in those early days of thought, but there were others, both in the Catholic Church and not, who contributed. And it was really based on the Catholic social justice principle of subsidiarity, which again is a fancy word, but it's just the idea that civic and economic matters should be handled on the smallest and lowest and least centralized authority possible. For example, on the town level or the family level. 
even though you might not have heard the word before, you're probably familiar with a lot of the ramifications of distributist thought because it's kind of what led towards the movement of going back to family farms, local eating, farmers markets, more sensitivity to local ecology, uh, local businesses, support for different artisan trades, just having smaller communities, being connected with people around you. That was kind of lost as the Industrial Revolution separated people and the suburbs. Like you said, Charity, kind of made people lose that specificity of where they were from. So really distributism is a philosophically thought out notion about eat local, buy local, but it, but it's, um, it's a much more thoughtful um, fleshing out. Yes. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And we never thought really that we were, we didn't think we'd do it. We just really like to think about it. And we like to drive through, um, you know, rural Virginia and think about how beautiful it was. We had both gone to the University of Virginia, which is in central Virginia, which is more rural than where we grew up. I always had kind of wished we could stay there, but our families were up in northern Virginia in the suburbs and we didn't want to sacrifice the proximity to our families just for kind of a dream. So, so in the distributist discussion group, we did meet two other young couples who were just starting their lives together, um, Liz and Jesse Strait from Wiffle Tree Farm in Warrenton, Virginia, and Pat and Elisa Fleming, who now run Verdant View Farm up near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Both are really wonderful places worth looking up if you're nearby. And these were, they were young couples like us. They were just starting out, and but they were doing it. Liz and Jesse, I think they lived in a really small place with maybe two acres and they were raising chickens and selling them um, in a sustainable way. And we even ended up visiting both of their farms and house sitting for Liz and Jesse Strait. And so it became more and more a real thing that people actually did and not just a dream. So many people are really already familiar with um, different ways to connect with the local economy like with farmers markets and CSAs, some people are plugged into buying co-ops. Yeah. And we did all that, but it costs a pretty penny and it worked when we had only one baby and two adults in the house, but it wasn't going to be sustainable with a big family. (laughs) That's for sure. So what became more sustainable for you? Well, I mean, actually doing some of it yourself, right? right? Having a big garden, growing all of those sugar snap peas, which are almost worth their weight in gold at the farmer's market. You know, (laughs) with a $3 packet of seeds, we can get two or three weeks worth of sugar snap peas um, instead of for a week's salary, you know, (laughs) Um, just, you know, growing our own. And we were trying to buy really good milk and that was complicated and very expensive. Again, that was something that we have pursued on our own here in our land. I think so many of us don't want to treat people and animals like they're machines. And sometimes that's our first instinct to move us away from giant box stores and the industrial food approach. We want something, we want our food to come from somewhere. We want it to be treated as it should be. We want it to be treated like a chicken, the chickenness of the chicken. (laughs) (laughs) You first met with these things kind of as an ideal, like there were concrete inquiet desires in the background and experiences like your experience in Wisconsin in the woods with Northern Light and Michael's experience in the Dominican Republic. Like these things were kind of in the background. 
that were there and had stirred up kind of a desire for connection with land and nature and a place. But then that was just kind of in the background. And then you had these these larger, more philosophical ideas. And then you found a way to integrate these great ideas into the concrete. Right. Finally, my husband just out of the blue ended up getting a job at a parish in a pretty small town that was still only an hour and a half from where both of our parents live. Um, And we knew we wanted to have close contact with the grandparents for our children. But this small town was in the middle of a pretty rural county. We were thrilled and we thought, okay, this is the time to take the plunge. And it was not neat and it was messy. We sold our house and we had to live with Michael's parents and then my parents for a series of months because we could not find anywhere to purchase. So it it wasn't pretty. Oh, uh, that's complicated. Yeah. That's pretty complicated. Finally, we did the property that we found. It was very providential. Um, It was only listed for about an hour. And I happened to see it when we were looking one night in my mother-in-law's dining room on the computer. A little bit over four acres, which was perfect for us because we knew Michael would be working full time and we weren't going to be making a living off this property. It was just going to be kind of a hobby We've now, long story short, collected over a dozen goats, some of which are dairy goats that we milk. Um, We raise short-haired sheep for meat, so we don't have to shear them. makes sheep raising less complicated because they have hair instead of wool. We Seasonally, we raise chickens for meat, and around the year, we have laying hens for eggs and a flock of ducks that like to wander around the property and dig up my flowers in the front garden. So a lot of fruit trees, raspberries, uh, blackberries, all sorts, that kind of thing that Michael planted right away when we got here. Growing fruit organically is very difficult in Virginia. So we actually have rarely actually had fruit from the fruit trees. Last year we had a lot of peaches and that was it. Um, But someday, somehow we will have fruit. Because of the bugs, it's hard to grow them organically? And the climate. We've had a lot of early warmth and then frosts after the warmth, which have, I think, destroyed the buds of the flowers and okay. fruit. So, yeah. So it's not necessarily the organic problem. I mean, it's not. Yeah, a- yeah the bugs haven't even had a chance to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we've always had a garden, large or small. Yeah. And this year has been, it's been flourishing because we've been stuck at home in this quarantine. That has really helped, I mean, just feed the family, but also give my kids something to do. Every child for the last maybe two or three years has had a square in the garden where they can plant whatever they want and they can take care of it however they want to. And my daughter, who's seven, reluctantly ate a piece of yellow squash the other night um, because she had grown it. It is true. It really does work. They (laughs) grow their own food. They'll eat it. Yes. You know, we've Mm. we've had a lot of squash and that was the first time she decided to eat it. So (laughs) it doesn't work perfectly. You know, one of the reasons I'm jealous of you is because you did this amazing thing to move your children to land. We, We can't. We think about how we want to give them contact with concrete things, concrete reality, that we want our children to be responsible for lives outside of themselves. Right now, though, mostly we just ask them to do regular morning chores and Saturday chores. And, you know, it's the reoccurring chores of like cleaning the bathroom and doing the dishwasher. But in your case, this place shapes their desire differently than simply the chores that I'm assigning to my children. We have all that stuff we have to do too, right? 
But there is a different feeling when you give a child responsibility for something that's outside the house. You know, we have a lot of boys. Our first three children are boys. They're Right now, they're almost 14, almost 12, and nine years old are our three oldest. And so I think we had this vision that moving out here would give them the ability to do some really physical, purposeful work where they could see the results of their work. And it wasn't just um, the kind of work that they still have to do, you know, sweeping up after dinner, cleaning the bathrooms, um, you know, stuff like you were mentioning. And we've really, we have done it in a lot of ways. Our older boys can handle the milking of the goats all by themselves. I do not know how to milk the goats at all, which was strategic because I thought if I don't learn, then that means the kids will have to learn sooner because when Michael's not here, somebody's going to need to do it. And it worked perfectly. So not many things in my life have worked as well as that strategy, but that worked well. That's amazing, Carla. I mean, the self-restraint you had in not learning how. I mean, I don't really do any of the chores involved with the animals at all. I supervise when Michael's out of town, but when he's here, he's the supervisor and the kids you know, can move the animals. We, we move the goats across the pasture so that they're not enclosed in one location all the time. So they're always being grass-fed along with the sheep. So you have to move their paddock every day, every day and a half with electric fencing. So my oldest son is in charge of that. My next son has raised chickens. Right now he's, I think he's in the water guy, which is a lot. You have to give all the animals water. My daughter is in charge of getting the ducks out in the morning from the barn and then finding them wherever they have wandered on the property and putting them in the barn. Um, and Did you say she's six? She's six. Yeah. Wow. And she feeds the chickens. She gives them their feed. She waters all the flowers. So she has a lot of responsibility that, I mean, I didn't even dream of. I, I probably only started cleaning the bathroom in my family's house when I was like 12. But I think that that kind of responsibility is really beautiful because they get to see this productivity and this flourishing from what they've done. And they see how much they matter. I hope they have a sense that they matter. Right. Things depend on them. (laughs) I just, I don't want to put rosy colored glasses on it though, because nobody's like jumping for joy to go do their chores in the morning. You know, I'm sure they're just as reluctant as your kids are to fold their laundry. You know, they have natural consequences if they don't do what they're supposed to do. Um, If my oldest son, you know, is kind of lackluster about the tension and the fences and doesn't pay attention to making sure they connect just right. We're going to have goats running throughout our orchard, eating the fruit trees, eating the flowers in the front garden. And it happens pretty frequently. And it's not the adults in the family that have to go chase the goats back. It's the kids. Yeah. And we had, you know, an incident where one of the kids just forgot to bring water on a really hot day out to the chickens. He had gotten interrupted in his chores. It wasn't on purpose, but The next morning, we had half of our meat birds that we were raising, maybe not exactly half, but a lot of them died. Very tragic because they eat a lot of grain. Ouch, (laughs) Um, that's so painful. So they're they're kind of, they're more expensive than the laying hens because they don't forage as much. But they saw what happened and they saw they were needed in, in those moments. I'm sure they probably aren't cheerful about it and couldn't say right now that that was, that's been helpful for them. I feel like my husband and I just, we try to have given them the best that we think we know, you know, something that we think is good and beautiful. And some of our kids will probably look back with fondness. Some might not, but I think I'm realizing more and more that's not my job to control, you know, the grace of God and their temperament and the way that God's made them. So 
you are giving them the best that you can to shape them uh, into great-hearted people, people capable of paying attention to lives outside their own. What they do with the opportunity isn't your responsibility. That's really liberating. And I hope I can cling to that as the motherly worry like <laughs> increases in yes. teenage years, right? Yes. Um, I mean, I think you mentioned something when we were talking before. You don't have to be on a hobby farm or a big farm to do this. I think it's made me realize that even inside the house, I need to offer my children opportunities to do things that are productive and not just, you know, the repair type chores, like teaching them to cook or, you know, make something with their hands with knitting or sewing or carpentry. You can be anywhere and do that. What I want to urge on people is how important it is to know where you're from. What is this place that I'm living in right now? What is specific to it? How is it shaping my desire? I've never lived so close to a Costco in my life, for example. That shapes my desire. (laughs) For the first time, I'm living in suburbia. God forbid, right? I thought I was too proud to think that um, I would ever do that. But that's all there is where I live. What I want to emphasize is that we don't all have to move to the country and eat a lot of peaches, but it's really important to wake up to where we are and engage with this specific place and get to know it better. So we've moved too many times. Each time we move, what my instinct is, is to look for an anchor. Like what was here before me? What are the big stories and the the big names that shape the development of this place? Uh, we moved from Illinois to Texas last summer. And we went on, well, we kind of still are on a Western kick. So things that developed the West, especially Texas, learning about cowboys, learning about cattle ranching. Because I think when I moved to a new place, I just have this instinct for place. I want want something that has come before me. I don't want to be simply shaped by the fact that Costco is really close. I can go there anytime and spend my money. In large amounts. I mean, that's one of the things that I feel like my family did as we were growing up. Uh, my family was always very, very attentive, you know, my mom and dad, to that same thing that you're just mentioning. And wherever we traveled to, we didn't just do kind of, you know, the entertaining kind of things, you know, I don't know, we, we would always go to the little tiny museums, and we would hike the trails. And my parents bought, you know, guidebooks and audio tapes about wherever it was that we were. So I think, you know, and we lived in the suburbs my whole life. And we spent a lot of time hiking in the mountains on the weekends, which I can tell you, my family is not as great about. We also can see mountains if we walk down our road three minutes. You know, I also, I often wonder if my children appreciated as much as I did because we loved going to the mountains when I was little. So I think you can definitely cultivate it. Yes. Yes. When we think about all this in relationship now to fictional characters and not our concrete children, somehow you can see it a little bit easier when you talk about books, how place becomes interior to the character. Right. Uh, Yeah. It's hard to talk about it in the abstract. And I really like how stories give the author the time and the space to reflect on what it really means. Like, Why are they putting this character in this place? Um, And how is this place going to shape their book and the story and the personality? I was thinking about what characters, when I picture them, from my reading, do I just automatically snap to their place? And Anne of Green Gables is one of them. 
actually, this is one of the places my family visited. We camped on Prince Edward Island. It was lovely because I loved Anne of Green Gables growing up. But I just reread it with my daughter. Anne of Green Gables, it's part of her title, right? Her place. She starts out as this really dreamy but engaging orphan with this incredibly romantic imagination that really has kind of sustained her through the trauma of losing her parents and being shuffled from one foster home to another. But it's it's so clear that at the beginning of the novel, the problem is that she needs a place. And that's not just a physical or even a natural landscape type location, but she needs a home and she needs a community, a family. And so you know, that's kind of the drama at the beginning. And then it's established that she's going to stay with Matthew and Marilla. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the story. So this brother and sister who adopt her are these very practical, down-to-earth people who in their own way fall in love with Anne and her vision of the world, of, you know, seeing the beauty in all the mundane from the tree outside her window to the ferns that she arranges on the table for tea time. Kind of their role And the way that they nurture her is a lot of times drawing her down from the clouds of her romantic imagination. Um, Right right into the concrete. Right, right. Because so many times it's her romantic imagination that leads her into these little mishaps. And it's, you know, that she's dreaming about something that she saw outside or a different landscape that she loves. And, you know, she puts salt in the cake instead of sugar. But then, (laughs) you know, when the book ends and she's more mature, she really is of Green Gables. You know, she sees when she leaves how she is so intrinsically connected to this place, to Avonlea and to Green Gables. They have formed her and she's also left a mark on her town and her home, Green Gables, as well. That's just such a great illustration. I I love Anne of Green Gables. Loved <laughs> it growing up. You were telling me, that you also have a negative example of place, how place shapes character negatively. So maybe a way to say it is place is both a gift and a task, right? You can offer your children this agrarian opportunity, but it's kind of up to them what they do with that gift. It's a gift to them, but it's also a task. Right. I I mean, as I was thinking about place, you know, the first place my mind goes is to the most beautiful place, the most ideal place, the most supportive community. But the reality is in order to flourish, we have to be, like you said, receptive of the gift of the place that we're given. One of the tasks is just to be grateful for that place, even the worst place imaginable. I I just read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, and part of that book takes place when she and her sister are in a concentration camp. Part of the beauty of her experience is that her sister draws her into this faith-filled gratitude for the smallest things in that concentration camp. And their faith and you know, their reading of scripture and their witness to Christ is able to transform their cell block where they were to a more humane place, not in huge ways, but in small ways, people saying, excuse me to one another instead of engaging in fist fights. That was a, a very hard place with a good response, a good re- receptivity of even the tiniest amount of gift that they could eke out of that awful place. But like you said, there there is the potential, and we all know this, to respond very negatively to what you're given. 
I've just been reading Little House on the Prairie with my daughter. In the eighth book of this series, in these happy golden years, Laura leaves home for the first time to go teach this very tiny community still out west. And she lives in a claim shanty with a married couple, Mr. and Mrs. Brewster, and their you know young son, almost a baby, I think. And Mrs. Brewster is just angry and resentful of living out West. She is just this in the flesh illustration of what happens when you're not receptive and not grateful for your place, even if it's a difficult one. And it's just so different from the way that Laura's mother and father had responded and you know, the, I think the previous book or maybe the right. one same that. challenges, right? Same right. challenges. It was but the a long winter. They response. were <laughs> They were eating, God. you know, potatoes and this very dense bread and starving almost, you know, through this whole winter. But they never devolved into the sullen, unmotivated anger that nearly drives Mrs. Brewster crazy with resent towards her husband for making her stay in this awful place because probably they were able to be receptive to what was, what was given them in that place and time and be grateful for the small things that they had. Mrs. Brewster, gosh, now as an adult, you know, I, I'm more sympathetic to what's going on with her. Maybe I would be Mrs. Brewster. I don't know. Hopefully I would be Ma Ingalls. <laughs> no, I mean, I think her response is really understandable. I mean, I've often wondered if it's a description of a type of clinical depression, right? So right. I don't mean to say out of hand that she's this evil monster. I think there's a lot of Mrs. Brewster in me a lot of times. Yeah, I think we can all realize it's really understandable. But at the same time, Laura's response to to Mrs. Brewster helps us to see that there's choice involved. Right. And how do we respond to what's been given to us? So what are some of your favorite books where just setting the sense of place or the sense of time and history really jumps out to you? as something that shapes the character and the story. I thought about it in two categories, the the autobiographical true story or even semi-autobiographical and then the the more fiction. So I'll go through the the autobiographical type first from the picture books that I just love is James Harriet's animal stories that are in his treasury for children. It's a whole series, Moses the Kitten, Only One Wolf. They're really sweet stories. You can find them separately or in one big treasury. The illustrations are gorgeous and the stories are of his experiences in the Yorkshire Dales in England and this little fictional town he calls Darrowby. And the people that he meets, they're, you know, he writes in their colloquial accents and the little small things that happen with the animals. And it's just, it's so small and gentle that... And so specific, right? It's no other place. And the way he describes the land, there's such a sense of specificity to it. Right. And I'm always in awe of the way that he was able to see these little moments as stories worth telling, that he was receptive to that and gave it to us as a gift, you know, with his storytelling gift, like the story of the cat who was just a Christmas cat today. No, this is Moses the kitten. And then raised by a a mama pig, basically. (laughs) For the older readers, I mean, we already mentioned Little House in the Prairie. It's so well known. Um, I probably don't even say anything about it, but less well known is Little Britches, which I would kind of, some people call it Little House in the Prairie for boys. Um, I enjoyed it as a woman, and I think my daughter enjoyed it too. It's the story of Ralph Moody. It's autobiographical. 
moving out to Colorado first, out west with his family. And there's a whole series of books, maybe six books that, I mean, it's incredible how the West shapes him. At one point, he's riding with cattle herders and he learns how to trick ride for the rodeo. And then he moves to Boston with his family because they have some financial hardship. But the West draws him back again as the series closes. So that's a great one. Very American. And then I know, Charity, you mentioned you had some urban books. The the one that I thought that has a really great urban sense of place, definitely for mature teens, would be A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Um, and that's definitely semi-autobiographical because I don't think the author even uses her name in the book. Um, you get a sense of all the different people and characters that she encounters in Brooklyn as she's um, coming of age. I don't know what it is about New York and Brooklyn. Someone once called New York the capital of the world. Maybe it, maybe because it is such an intensely urban place, there's so much fiction about it. It's kind of a recently published book series called The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street. They're a biracial family. They kind of have a lot of kids. I think they have five, which is a lot of kids nowadays. And they live in a brownstone in Harlem with its Jewish, Italian, and African-American history, a really unique community. And it's all about their relationships and adventures in the city. I found it so impressive being the modern helicopter mom that I am, that their parents just kind of (laughs) let them loose in the city, just like... (laughs) You let yours loose on your four acres. (laughs) They tell people where they're going mostly, but they have adventures in the city on the blocks and the surrounding their home. I love the sense of family that it has, the relationships with each other. What struck me about this place, Harlem in the story, is how it shapes these Vanderbeeker kids into children who live easily and readily in community. They would not be the same kids if we tried to move the setting to the country. I, I'm not usually someone who feels warm and fuzzy about cities, but these books gave a sense of the city as not a lonely or alien place, but as a warm and humanizing place where you could see the goodness of all kinds of human endeavors. The first story is a story about how they have to persuade their landlord not to. Um, force them out of their apartment. He wants them to move. And how do they go about convincing him? How do they go about charming him into letting them stay? Um, some of the some of my other urban books that have a beautiful sense of place. One is for very young children, probably four and under, and it's called City Moon by Rachel Cole. Um, a little boy in the evening, his mother helps him put his pajamas on, and then they go walk around the city looking for the moon behind the the skyscrapers away from the daytime press of the people, we see that this specific child is known and loved and that the city can be a familiar and gentle place with charms of its own. Another one called Last Stop on Market Street by Matt Ladella Pena, where a boy learns to be grateful and learns to see his city landscape and be grateful for the people that he meets. It opens by him coming out of church and it begins to rain and he complains about not having a car and having to ride the bus instead. When he's on the bus and moving slowly through the town, a blind man gets on and helps him to see things differently. Eventually, in the way that his Nana responds to him at the end of the story, he says, I'm glad we came. So it's kind of about accepting and seeing the beauty of the urban landscape. Of course, there are just, there's so many rural ones. We could talk about those in a minute, but there's one about a girl who moves to the suburbs 
and it's called On Meadowview Street. And it's written by Henry Cole. This girl, it's so funny because she moves to this house that looks like all the other houses on her street. And one of the first things that she wonders is, where's the meadow? It says Meadowview Street. And so the story is about how she turns her front yard into the meadow. <laughs> she, her dad has to stop mowing the yard because she's planted different things and he's tired of mowing around them. He gives in and builds a little pond in their front yard. So they become this no-mow area, and it, they kind of develop the meadow on Meadowview Street. The illustration is kind of a pan out from the whole street, and you can see that the meadow that she put in front of her house has inspired other people to do things with their yards to create a welcoming place for um, animals, a more natural and less cookie-cutter yard. So I like that one because it, it tells us suburban dwellers that contact with <laughs> reality is possible. So what are um, some of your picture books that you Oh, the that- fictional for so for the fictional ones I have to say some of my favorites are Robert McCloskey's books that take place in Maine. My parents lived up in Maine. It was always a place that they had a fondness for and I never visited it until I guess I was probably almost 18 and we took a summer vacation up there and camped in Maine. I just love the north. My family now Michael and I we take our kids up north pretty much for our summer vacations. Um, we just love that environment. So Blueberries for Sal, One Morning in Maine, Time of Wonder. You just can't help but love the landscape of Maine when you read them and the place where they take place. You know, from the, the preschool level of just Sal and her mom and the hill with the wild blueberries to kind of a, a larger view in Time of Wonder where you see how these children live on a main island throughout the seasons. And then One Morning in in Maine is just great because it's got these New England characters that come into the story who are just great, um, kind of like the James Harriet British characters, just so local and so specific, like you said. And another another fictional one that I just think is great for little ones is the original Winnie the Pooh, especially the recordings. My kids just love the audiobooks of Winnie the Pooh, and they'll go through the original and kind of look at the illustrations. And as they learn to read, follow along, then all the the songs that Pooh Bear sings are sung, and all the animals have their own voices. So it's just it's lovely. I think it really shows how imagination is a place where you can be and return to and that can form you and can be fruitful. Totally random aside, but the movie Christopher Robin, nothing super profound, but I thought it just did a really nice job of kind of had an endearing way of showing that the Hundred Acre Woods was just a place that was very real to a child and a person and formative and also kind of a state of mind that you could carry even as you became more mature. Of course, I kind of have this preference for agrarian things. <laughs> so it's it's easier for me to find books that I absolutely adore that have to do with land and farm. The first one that came to my mind is called All the Places to Love by Patricia McLaughlin. And I'm offering my readers, um, if you can read it without crying, you can enter to win a $100 gift card. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) But it's just, it's so beautiful. Another one called Home Place by Anne Shelby begins with a grandmother pulling a grandchild onto her lap and, and starting to talk to the child about this place where your great, 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 great grandfather 
built. And so it begins with a log cabin. And as this, as she talks about the home, you see it being built up and added on to. You see some of the things from the early days being turned into heirlooms. You see changes in technology You see and, and clothing. You see wallpaper covering over the newspaper that they'd been using as insulation. It's just beautiful because then you see how this place has shaped the whole family for generations. So you can see also the intergenerational connection that place can have. There's one simply about home, the place closest to us. It's called Let's Go Home, The Wonderful Things About a House by Cynthia Ryland. This book helped me wake up to the gifts that are right before my eyes. It basically is a kind of meditation on each room in the house, even the attic. It kind of just helps you appreciate the purpose of each room in your home, kind of the comfort and the beauty and the possibility of all the different rooms in your home. Oh, then there's one for you, Carla, (laughs) called Our Animal Friends at Maple Hill Farm by Allison Martin Provinson. Yes, this is your house. (laughs) This is your farm. They're quirky um, anecdotes about the animals, um, the animals' different personalities, the funny things they name their animals. Do you have it in front of you? I do. Yes. What are the names? I can't remember. I loved the names. Okay. So they have horses and they're called Ichabod and Comanche. Everybody loves horses except some people who are afraid of them. Oh, well, no people are perfect. Um, they, they name their sheep, hilarious things like goat deer and whiny. We had a sheep that we named fence masher. (laughs) They have a sheep called old 11. Who's really smart and always has twins. They have hilarious names for their cats, like potato who disappeared Yes, they the cat names were great. I remember that. Gooseberry, Max, Willow, Eggnog. So just a wonderful book where they have clearly engaged with their heart and their mind and their sense of humor in this particular place with a great deal of affection for the animal lives around them. The next book I have to tell you about, my own story is wrapped up in it. It's called Growing Seasons by Elsie Spleer. And I first discovered this book, funnily enough, when I was in college working for the education department as a student job. And I I came across this book and I was making it a part of the children's library at the university. And I was looking at the illustrations and I thought to myself, oh, this is so interesting. The light in these illustrations is so beautiful. It reminds me of home, home being Illinois, home being Hersher. And then I, I turned to the author's page and it turns out that the author is from Hersher. And the stories in it are all about Hersher. In fact, oh, that's so great. And the illustrator was a local artist, a local, well, he was actually a cartoon artist, a political cartoonist um, who also was an artist. Now I have this book of really worthwhile stories about growing up as a tenant farmer, and it's steeped in the beauty of the place where I grew up. It happens to be a family of girls growing up in the 19 teens is when they were born. Carla, do you have some more picture books or do you have novels that show how the characters encounter with their place shapes them? For novels or the older reader books, most of the things I have to suggest anybody who's serious about looking for books for their kids probably knows these books, but um, Charlotte's Web, just E.B. White's 
wry, witty writing is such a delight, even as an adult. I love this book, but I loved especially reading it recently and thinking about how the Zuckerman's farm and the barn is this place of silence, um, a refuge for a fern that enables her to hear um, and enables her to hear the animals and, you know, the gift that they were. Um, I mentioned Anne of Green Gables. The whole series is just amazing about Prince Edward Island. Also, The Secret Garden, which I read repeatedly as a child and departed from for many, many years and just listened to it again on long car ride with my kids. And it was amazing. And it just struck me how transformative the place was for the characters of Mary and Mr. Craven in particular, but the place in company with the people that she encounters and her ability to be receptive to it, because it's really the main character's receptivity that changes throughout the book and enables the change to take place through who she meets in the landscape and with the garden and everything. The Lord of the Rings, I mean, you look at the maps there and you think, where where is it on the globe? You know, it's so real. And each of the characters have their own place. It's almost like they grew out of the soil of these places. The hobbits have to emerge from their nurturing place to go into the wider world and adventure and the elves and Rivendell who are so secluded and they have this perfect place, but they have to overcome their desire to cling to it to help the rest of their world the healing wood with the lady of the wood and kind of the hellish searingness of Mordor. That's just this incarnate place of evil. I it's remember so good. coming away from reading the books, thinking that they were so real and concrete. They were more vivid than my own life. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a big like fantasy reader, but I love the way that those books put you in that place. I had two that were kind of out of the way that maybe you haven't heard, even if you have been diligently researching books for your kids. This is a favorite from when I was growing up. A house is a house for me. And we still have the copy that I read as a child. And that's the one I read to my kids. This is so whimsical. It's the idea that a house or a home can be any little space for any creature from, you know, uh, a rug is a home for a bug in a rug to support, <laughs> you know, different houses from different cultures, even containers. I think a pickle barrel is one of the homes. It's so it's very whimsical and it's got a great kind of rhythmic poetic sound to it that makes even the smallest kids like it. Neat. And then the other one, which I would just, I love as an adult and all of my kids from the 12 year old down to the two year old love listening to the mysterious Benedict society And it's a series of books, but we just got started with them and (laughs) I love them. I love them. They're so engaging. Their characters are so unique, but for place in particular, I thought in the first book of the series, which is called Mysterious Benedict Society, and this is, and then like a prequel to the series, which was written later called The Extraordinary Education of Nicholas Benedict the the buildings and the institutions and the different little settings where the characters find themselves and they have to you know solve problems and go on adventures they're so well drawn and they really shape and they're very integral to who these characters are these these it's more of the buildings not the landscape around them so it's it's hard to describe but 
if you read the book. You but know if, exactly we're, if we're talking I mean. about a specificity of place, then these right. institutions and how they shape the characters is really it's an interesting thing to consider and how are institutions a kind of setting? How are institutions a kind of place that becomes interior to character? And the author, Trenton Lee Stewart, he's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is this really well-respected program of creative writing that some well-known people like Wallace Stegner and Flannery O'Connor and Marilyn Robinson have graduated from that program. So Uh, it's quality writing too. My oldest two and I were before bed, we're daydreaming how we wish we could get together with Mr. Stewart and ask him and just ask him questions about what was he thinking and his different, like, how did he come up with the idea? Um, We really want to ask him, I don't want to give anything away, but we really wanted to ask him about his character, Constance Contraire, if she was inspired by any children he knew in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Carla, it has just been so fun to talk to you about how character is shaped by place and to think with you about these books because we just right we want to continue to propose books to our children that correspond to the vision of the world we're hoping them to have it's good to talk with you as another mom and as a as a woman of great thoughtfulness carla it's really it's really good to think with you through these different books about how does setting shape character and how engaging in the specificity of your place is an important way to begin to live thoughtfully, to engage reality concretely, to help turn your children into people who are engaging concretely, who willingly accept the task that the gift presents, the gift of this place, the gift of this time that they're in. Well, I'm just so grateful that you asked me to do this charity. It's been a joy, but I think it's also been very timely, perhaps not coincidental that this was a topic that you thought of at this time for our country and our world where for many of us, our place has become where we are most of the time. Yes. Um, and we really need the inspiration to look at it with eyes of receptive gratitude in order to flourish where we are. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. If you've been enjoying this conversation and want to think more about these ideas, head to brightwingschildrensbooks.com. There you will find a list of all the books we discussed. And if you want more food for thought, there's an interview of my favorite author, Wendell Berry, titled Going Home. All right now, y'all, go on home.